So these last few weeks have certainly been turbulent, more turbulent than we would have liked, more turbulent than anyone had expected. And there have been plenty of things to be upset about as well, things that have made us sad, things that have caused us to feel angry as well, perhaps. And we're not yet at the end of all of that. There's still some way to go, and we're all expecting to face further challenges and difficulties as we head towards the end of the year and beyond. We are, however, coming to the end of our journey through the Book of Lamentations, which has also been uh, challenging and perhaps a bit of a struggle these past few weeks. There's no getting away from it. Lamentations is a difficult book that deals with difficult things. And we, we might have found it quite depressing or discouraging to read and to think about. As we've been told each week, it's a book that was written after a specific period in history when terrible things happened to the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. Things that might have been difficult for us to imagine if it wasn't for the war that's going on at the moment in Ukraine and the reports that we hear of what has been happening in that country. I don't know about you, but as I've read through the book of Lamentations, the descriptions of what happened to Jerusalem and the people of Judah have become all the more real because of what we've been reading in the news since the beginning of the year about Russia and Ukraine. And as we come this morning to the final chapter of this book, we might be wondering about how it's all going to end And after reading about so much misery and grief and suffering in the previous chapters, we might be hoping for an ending that will lift our spirits and give us hope. In fact, chapter 5 is the shortest chapter in this book, the last in a series of five poems of lament. And as we've looked, looked at each chapter, as we've read each poem in this series, we've been asking the question... What can we learn from these examples of lament? Because we lament when we openly express our feelings of loss or grief or sadness. And there's a lot that is lamentable in what happened to Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. There's a lot that's lamentable in our world today too. We know that things are not the way God wanted them to be. Things are not the way we want them to be. And that's true not only in the world at large, but also when we look at our own lives. Just think for a moment, what is there in the world around us that brings us grief? And what is there in our own lives that is a cause for sadness or disappointment? When we think about such things, it can leave us feeling depressed, disappointed, and discouraged. But in Ecclesiastes, the writer tells us that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And Jesus himself said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So lament is about facing reality, being honest with ourselves and with God about what we see around us, or what we see within us, and how that makes us feel sometimes. There are many themes 
contained within the book of Lamentations, the five chapters, and we find several of them repeated for us in the very last chapter. When we first read chapter 5, we might have the impression that it's quite similar to the other four chapters, but I'd like to suggest that there are, in fact, some important differences. So not only is it shorter than the other chapters, it's also a prayer from start to finish. Look at verse 1. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. And then going down to verse 19, we read, You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. And finally, almost the last verse, verse 21. Restore to us, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. So the author is addressing God directly, and even if the request is one that we've heard several times before in earlier chapters, the fact that it's repeated here as the starting point of this final chapter is significant. The hope seems to be that if God remembers what has happened, if he looks and sees the disgrace of his people, then he will be moved to compassion to intervene in some way and bring help and restoration to these people who are suffering. Verse 19 is a statement of faith, an affirmation that God has not been defeated or lost control of the situation. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. And that affirmation is the foundation for the request In verse 21, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. It's a foundation that is vitally important. All through this book, the things that have happened to Jerusalem and Judah, the destruction and the desolation that are described, are attributed to God. Again and again, it is the things that God has done or he has allowed to happen that are described rather than all of these things being the result of some enemy. So since that is the case, it's only the Lord who can bring about the restoration that the people desire. So imagine if the writer of these poems didn't believe at all in God then the chapters would be filled with the same kinds of descriptions, but all of the destruction would be attributed to the Babylonian army or to King Nebuchadnezzar. We know that it was the army, it was the Babylonians that laid siege to Jerusalem. We know that it was their hands and their weapons that destroyed the city and defeated the people. But those descriptions of what the army did and what Nebuchadnezzar did are strangely missing from this book. And rather, the author is determined to give another perspective on what has happened. The writer of these words could have left God out of the picture completely. But that's not what we have in this book. God is very present in every chapter 
And that's really important to take note of as we get to the end of this book. So the disgrace that is mentioned in verse 1 is then described more fully in the next 13 verses or so. Normally, disgrace is something that we want to hide, something that we don't really talk about. But in this chapter and in the whole book of Lamentations, it's very much on display for anyone who is prepared to read about it. But it's not comfortable reading. I was thinking about the word disgrace. Disgrace. And its connection with the word grace, a word that means so much to us. Disgrace. What happens when we add the three letters D-I-S to the beginning of a word? How does it transform the word? Well, let's think of some examples of words, other words that have D-I-S at the beginning. What about disagree, dishonest, dislike, or disapprove? It's like adding D-I-S to the beginning of a word turns it into the opposite. And originally, D-I-S, dis, had the sense of being apart or separated from something. So disgrace can be thought of as being the opposite of grace. Or disgrace could be the result of being separated or being apart from grace. And grace, as we know, carries the idea of being treated with favour. Not because of what we've done or what we've earned or deserved, but rather as a gift. So disgrace then seems to be about receiving what we do deserve. And that's something that the author has been underlining in every chapter of this book. Disgrace is the result of separating ourselves from grace, from God's grace. It's what happens when we are apart from grace. And the results are there to see throughout the book of Lamentations, but they're summarized for us in this final chapter. The people are experiencing all kinds of difficulties, loss and mistreatment in exile. We just have to read verses 2 to 13 for some examples so we've got loss of, loss of inheritance, loss of homes, loss of fathers and husbands. We've got water and wood that are no longer freely available. And these people are tired and weary from being pursued. They're hungry, they're disrespected, their work is unending toil. And verse 15 captures precisely the result that we would expect It says, joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. And verse 16 describes very aptly the reversal of their situation. The crown has fallen from our head. This was God's people, a royal nation, and the crown has fallen from their head. And then there is the acknowledgement in the second half of verse 16, of why this has all happened. Woe to us, for we have sinned. 
And it wasn't just that they'd stopped following God's instructions. They had distanced themselves from God altogether. They had replaced God with other idols. And then there were consequences. Because of this, our hearts grow faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim for Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. So the effect is that they're beginning to lose sight of what is most important to them. It's a dangerous route to go down to separate ourselves in any way from God or from God's grace. And in fact, the falling of a crown from our heads can be a good thing if it reminds us of our most fundamental need, which is God himself. The chapter and the book end on a strange note. Acknowledging that the future for these people depends on something beyond themselves. Let me read verses 21 and 22 together. So this is the prayer. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. So let's just think about that ending for a moment. Is it possible that God has utterly rejected them? Do they believe that God is angry with them beyond measure? What kind of way is that to finish this book? What kind of way is that to end this journey? With a sense of, maybe that's it. Maybe God's done with us. Maybe there's no way back. Imagine what it would be like to be in that position and to think in that way. This whole book raises lots of questions. It raises questions about God's nature, his anger, which frequently appears in this book. It's something we need to consider and think about carefully and talk about because for the writer at least these things have happened because God is angry at his people what we don't have in the book of lamentations though is God speaking into the situation we have the poet's reflections on the situation And we know, thankfully, that this isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the Bible when we get to the end of Lamentations. If anything, this end of this book just makes us look for hope. And hope is to be found. It's to be found 
in Lamentations itself. Two weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 3, and we had these verses. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We've sung it this morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. We can hold on to those verses and at the same time recognize that the end of the chapter, the end of the book, raises a question, have we gone too far? And I think that's where God would want us to end up and the author would want us to finish. Not with everything neatly wrapped up, not with all of our questions answered, but very much in pursuit of God's answers. And not as something we pursue just on our own, but something that we can do together. Something we can talk about together. Something that we can explore together. Something that we can seek together. God's answers, God's truth, God himself. So I think that's where I want us to finish with this book. An encouragement to not to leave this behind, but to continue. And we'll have a time now with Peter leading us to reflect, but... The end of Lamentations isn't the end of the story, as we know. But we still need to keep, keep our thinking here, at least for a little bit longer, I think.